This is absolutely the worst pain I've ever felt. It's all in my lower abdomen. I'm, I have a cold sweat. I'm shaking. So I know something's really wrong at this point. For me, I think just being honest is the biggest thing. And when something is wrong, don't pretend like nothing is wrong. We all know how sick we feel when our stomach is upset. We've all experienced queasiness and stomach pain. And not only are the nausea and pain and diarrhea that come with stomach upset among the most uncomfortable symptoms that we can have when we're sick, just talking about stomach upset can be so embarrassing. No one wants to talk about poop or vomit, but you can't avoid it if you want to get medical help for gastrointestinal disease. On this episode of Lifespan, two guests will describe what it's like to live with chronic GI disease. Caitlin is a medical student, and she has had Crohn's disease for seven years. And Matt, who is a graduate student in history, has had excruciatingly painful episodes of diverticulitis. We'll hear from Matt first. It was about a dozen years ago. I was in my early 30s. I just had this really intense pain in my lower abdomen. So the next day, I went to the doctor, and it was a misdiagnosis because they told me it was prostatitis. And he gave me antibiotics, which is exactly what you would do for diverticulitis. Um, so it cleared up in a few days. Matt had gone to see his primary care physician, not a gastroenterologist. And a year later, he had the same distinctive, unbearable pain. He'd moved by then, so he made an appointment with a different doctor. And he was more concerned. It's like, this sounds like diverticulitis. I want you to go get a, a colonoscopy. The gastroenterologist that did the scope was like, wow, you're really young. It becomes very normal to see it after the age of 60, but you're really young. Matt was only 32, and yes, he had diverticulitis, an infection of the small pouches that sometimes develop along the intestinal walls. When you have these pouches, it's a benign condition called diverticulosis, which isn't a problem in and of itself, but if the pouches become inflamed, you have diverticulitis, and that can be serious. You could tell something was wrong. It felt like a blockage or something, but I wasn't having any issues like constipation or anything like that. It was just you felt something was there. And that was kind of scary, you know, because then all these other things start popping up in your mind. You know, do I have a tumor or something like that? Um, And so the the actual diagnosis of diverticulosis was a little bit comforting because I knew something more serious wasn't, at least at that point, it wasn't that serious. After my initial diagnosis, I would go sometimes a year or more without any issue. I would get to the point where I almost forget about it. So over that decade, you know, maybe once a year or so, I'd have a little problem. I'd go to the doctor. They would, you know, give me antibiotics, tell me to watch my diet and things like that, and it would clear up. And after I started grad school, the frequency of the flare-ups was increasing. Then I started having issues about every six months. It was summer 2015. I accepted an internship with the RAND Corporation, and that took me out to Los Angeles. You know, I would have a day or two where I'd be in a little bit of pain, and it was never as severe as the major flare-ups I had had before, but I was ignoring it. By Labor Day, Matt was back home preparing to return to graduate school. I was taking a class or two and doing my teaching assistant work. And 
we went to my mother's to uh, for the Labor Day weekend. And it was Saturday evening, and it really hit me hard. It was one of the worst episodes I had had. Sunday, the same thing. It was, it was even difficult at that point to, to walk. But because it was a long holiday weekend, Matt waited until Tuesday to consult his physician. Tuesday, I go and tell them my issue and everything, and they gave me antibiotics. At this point, it was so bad, I'd, I'd stopped eating. It felt horrible. I threw up. Uh, but that made me feel better. What Matt didn't know was that it's an ominous sign for anyone with diverticulitis who is in that much pain to throw up because it could signal an obstruction. But since vomiting made him feel better, he was much less worried. And I slept really well that night. And I, uh, I woke up the next morning. My wife is getting ready for work. She asked me how I felt. And I was laying there, and I thought, you know, I, I feel pretty good. And she's like, okay, well, you know, have a good day. And she went off to work. By the time I got up out of the bed and made my way to the bathroom to take a shower, the pain was just incredible. I knew something was really, really wrong. I called my wife. I said, you need to come home. I usually took my daughter to school. I was like, you need to take Emma to school, and you need to come back and take me to the emergency room. I'm, I have a cold sweat. I'm shaking. So I know something's really wrong at this point. Uh, she takes me to the emergency room, drops me off, parks. I uh, walk inside. I tell them I'm, I'm in the most severe abdominal pain I've ever felt. It's that type of thing for you. You reevaluate your pain scale. <laughs> and it's like, okay, now I know where, where 10 really is. And then they sent me for a CT scan. And right after the scan, doctors told Matt, you have to have surgery immediately. They moved me to pre-op. They said, you have a perforation. Uh, your diverticulitis has created an abscess. That abscess has basically ruptured your bowel. And you're going to have to have a bowel resection. Matt needed a colostomy, a temporary diversion of his colon to an outside artificial opening in order to bypass the damaged portion of his bowel. And I thought, wait, is this temporary? She's like, yeah, it'll be for six months. I thought, okay, all right, I can deal with this. So a surgeon removed the diseased portion of Matt's colon, and what remained was diverted to a temporary opening made on his abdomen, called a stoma. Stomas are any artificial openings made on the surface of your body. But in this case, the stoma existed so stool could be released into a colostomy bag that Matt wore externally. In the meantime, because of the inflammation and everything, I needed time to heal. And that's the primary purpose of the colostomy bag, to give what was left of Matt's colon a chance to heal. So all the matter that's supposed to go out the other way comes out through the stoma, and you know you collect it in a colostomy bag. That was going to be the plan for six months, uh, which is really just life-altering, you know, at that point. And the real irony in all of this was about a year before this, I had committed to taking better care of myself. And um, so I started working out. I tried to, you know, modify my diet. And I'd lost about 40 pounds and was really feeling a lot better overall. Uh, and then this happened. This was on a Wednesday after Labor Day, September 9th. I'll never forget that day. So sometime in the afternoon, they, they take me into surgery, and it, it was bad. And the next day when the surgeon came by, he said, we, we saved your life. 
you had about 24 hours maybe before we would be just making you comfortable. Because the infection was that bad. The infection was that bad. The damage was that bad. And the nurse was the same way. She's like, we don't even know how you walked in here. You know, later I assessed, you know, how lucky I am to live in the time that I did, that the medical technology was able to save my life and, and, and the advancements there. All of it, the post-antibiotic era, that surgery is safe, that surgery is hygienic, all of that. You're right, another era, you would not have survived. Yeah. But Matt's healing was slow. I'm still in the hospital, um, and of course I can't have any food yet because I can't have anything pass through because there's still inflammation and everything. I have the NG drain, um, you know. Nasogastric tube. Yeah, to, to keep removing the, you know, stomach contents. Usually with the nasogastric tube, doctors are providing nutrition into the stomach. But in Matt's case, doctors were trying to keep everything out of his gastrointestinal system. I can have water. I can have food. So any nutrition was coming in through the IV. The only thing... I was allowed to put in my mouth was these frozen lemon-flavored cotton swabs. I think it was about 10 days that I didn't have any food. I lost about 20 pounds in the hospital. So the intravenous fluids then are completely bypassing your gastrointestinal system. That's it, yeah. And the other problem was they were concerned that the stoma they gave me, where where the colostomy goes, was receding. And that meant Matt might need an additional surgery. At this point, Matt's case was getting too complicated for the local surgeon to handle, so Matt was transferred by ambulance to another hospital. And while he had a private room in the original rural hospital, in the big city hospital, he had a roommate. I don't want to be judgmental, but this this fella was constantly complaining and groaning and moaning and on his deathbed. And like yelling at his wife and everything, and I'm just having the most miserable time. Matt couldn't sleep. He was being poked and prodded at every turn. But he had some hope. Before he left the first hospital, the surgeon told him they might reverse the colostomy at the big city hospital. I wish he hadn't told me that because, you know, the the next morning they get a look at the CT scan and everything. So they decide, okay, good news, you're not going to have to have any revision to the stoma. You're going to be okay. I was like, okay, well, what about reversal? I was like, there's just no way we could do it now. The good news is it's not going to be six months. It'll be five weeks. I was like, well, that's a lot better. Um, Still, though, you know, that little grain of hope, it was kind of depressing knowing that I'm still going to have to deal with this for five weeks. Matt was far away from home, and because his wife was working and caring for their daughter, she couldn't make the three-hour round trip to see him every single day. I had, I think... Three or four different roommates, because there was, there was one guy who had an appendectomy, <laughs> in and out, uh, kidney stones, in and out, you know, and I'm still here laying in this bed. But, you know, but I am slowly getting better, and they start introducing food. So it is working. I'm, I'm getting better, but it's slow. And, of course, then they have to wait for you to actually pass something through the, the colostomy before they'll ever let you go, and that was taking a while. That's something I still hadn't dealt with. Because laying in bed, I didn't have to look at it. I didn't have to worry about it. And, and the nurses were taking care of it. And I would, it gives you a whole different relationship to your body. It does. And, and you know, at that point, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I've never had to deal with something like that. It just changes your whole 
perception of yourself. Suddenly I felt frail, you know, and damaged um, and, and in need of care. It even changes your relationship with your wife, with your daughter. Yeah, it did. And, and my poor wife, she does everything she can, but she's squeamish. Anything that, that kind of hurts her or makes her feel ill, she's going to pass out. And the day I had my surgery, they, when, when she made it back to the, to the hospital and I'm in pre-op and they're explaining the surgery, she's sitting in a chair and she had to get down on the floor and lay down. And, of course, the nurses, the doctors, all concerned. I was like, no, just, just leave her. She's going to be okay. So I know part of this I'm going to have to be on my own. You know, she's going to do everything she can for me, but there's going to be a point where it's going to be me. And as we're approaching that, that, that time for me to go home is when they start talking about, you know, the care for this colostomy. And I have to kind of start, you know, facing reality. So, you know, they, they send in the, the nurse that kind of takes care of that stuff and shows me how to clean it and everything. Matt became a self-described hermit. Even though he was still in graduate school and had a teaching assistantship, his department, the history department, told him to just take the time off to get better. I was just staying at home trying to get back in the groove of reading, which is what we do as historians, trying to catch up on some work, trying to write some papers. In October, after the five weeks doctors had predicted, Matt went back to the hospital to have his colostomy reversed. Although he had lost close to 12 inches of his large intestine, the reversal was successful, but he wasn't out of the woods yet. A few days into the recovery in the hospital, my incision got infected. Matt had two incisions, one from his previous surgery and one for the reversal, and both had become inflamed. They were doing what they call wound probing, which was one of the more miserable experiences because they're basically taking cotton swabs and going in between your staples and into the incision to try to clean it. Everything else is going okay as far as the bowel resection, but now I have an open wound <laughs> that I have to deal with. They're like, okay, well, you can pack it at home. So could your wife do that? No, I laughed at him. I was like, there's absolutely no way she's getting near that. So finally what they decided was to send me home with a wound vac. It's a small device. It almost looks like a little purse. And just like it states, there is packing that they put down into the wound. And over top of that is an adhesive. It's almost like a really flat suction cup that has a tube on it. And then that tube attaches to this little device that you wear. And it keeps negative pressure on the wound to keep it drained. It's battery powered. You can you know, walk around with it for three or four hours on a charge. And so it keeps it sealed so no debris or, or anything bacteria can get in there. It helps drain it. And the negative pressure helps it close. So I'd have to have a home health care nurse come in three times a week to change the dressing, you know, remove the, the foam, this foamy material that they put inside the wound that the liquid would drain through as it, it sucked out. They said it would be about five to six weeks. You know, it's just a matter of how well you're healing. Let me ask you, and I know this, you know, when you start talking about poop, it gets personal, <laughs> but you have an open wound here, so it's difficult to go to the bathroom, but you are going to the bathroom at this point. Yeah, so that's the other thing, of course, just like before, they have to wait for you to, you know, to make a bowel movement before they release you. I was having a little bit of trouble, and of course, you're you're on opioids, which of course, you know, causes issues and everything. Causes constipation, Exactly. Yeah. Um, so finally, they're like, okay, well, let's start you on uh, magnesium citrate, the 
awful, awful tasting laxative. It was still, nothing was really happening. So they were like, okay, let's give them another bottle. And then finally, you know, the, the first time that I actually had a regular bowel movement in like five or six weeks. And they're like, okay, you know, now you can go home. They you know, sort of prepped me on the wound vac and, and everything, what was going to happen. Uh, you know, gave me sort of a breakdown of what to look for and just regular maintenance and how to recharge it and everything and sent me on my way. So we get home and, and try to get settled in. And, of course, life is just as uprooted as it was before because now I'm having to walk around with this small purse that has tubes, you know, coming out of me. It's just another inconvenience because you're constantly worried about snagging a tube and, you know, pulling something out and making sure that it's charged. Matt had trouble sleeping. He was accustomed to sleeping on his stomach, and of course that was impossible, at least temporarily. For months he had to sleep on his back, and he still required constant medical attention. From September 9th to December 19th, I was in some type of care, either with a doctor or nurse. And then finally, yeah, so it was about a week before Christmas, before they would actually freed me from from all care. By then, Matt had been away from graduate school for months. He'd lost his rhythm, his momentum. The entire semester was a wash. Over Christmas break, I was basically setting the reset button to get back to the grind. Fortunately, you know, by the time January came around and the next semester started, I was able to hit the ground running. I was I was back to, you know, sleeping on my stomach and finally got back to working out again sometime in, in February or so. And it was, you know, starting to put everything back together after this ordeal. Matt had more complications from the surgery about a year later, a ventral hernia, which is a bulge of tissue at the site of one of his incisions, and Matt's primary care physician sent him to a surgeon for repair. And lo and behold, it was the same surgeon who had done the original bowel resection that did my hernia surgery in December. He used three sheets of surgical mesh to patch it all together. He's like, it's shingled in there. But, you know, ever since then, everything's pretty much been okay. People don't recognize how serious abdominal surgery can be. You, you don't, you think of surgery, you think of getting through the surgery, you don't think of complications after the surgery. And there are often complications after major surgery. Very much so. Um, and, and that's what I've come to find out when you, you, know, you start talking to other people that have been sort of through the same ordeal. Basically, you know, it's been a almost three-year ordeal, um, you know, of course, now I'm, I, I've fully recovered. I'm, I'm doing everything I did before. But, uh, you know, it does change your perception of yourself. And it's something I've kind of had to work with and not feel that vulnerable anymore, not feel as frail as I did before. And it's something that, of course, men are also very guilty of is ignoring you know, the little pains and everything. And I have to admit, I've become a little bit of a hypochondriac after that just because, you know, I don't want to be in that situation again where it's life or death. And now you think of any, any kind of symptom or pain is significant, that you don't brush it aside anymore. Exactly. There's been times where it's like, well, you know, this isn't that big of a deal, um, but I, I'd rather be safe than sorry now than go through what I did before. I was a lot closer to death than I'd ever thought I'd be at the age of 40. I asked Brian Torsky, a gastroenterologist, if diverticulitis can reoccur. Yes, but there is no rhyme or reason to who it will recur in and when it would recur. Just because you have it once uh, does not mean that you will get it again. So 
we tell patients just to live after they have their first inciting event. We just encourage healthy lifestyle, weight loss, and things like that. I asked Matt if he had any words of wisdom for anyone going through a serious health episode. Anytime you experience pain, don't ignore it. It can be extremely hazardous. And, and just in general, um, you know, listen to your body. If you don't feel well, you know, go to the doctor. And, and, and that's something that I've learned over time. It's better to be inconvenienced than to take that couple hours to make an appointment and go see your doctor than it could be to, you know, derail you like it did me for almost a, a year. It's way easier for medicine to prevent something than it is to cure something. Exactly. There are a number of lessons in Matt's story. Listen to your body, pay attention to symptoms, especially serious pain. If you don't pay attention to signs and symptoms, you can end up much sicker than if you'd just taken the time to see a doctor. While Matt's bout with diverticulitis took a long time to resolve, as Dr. Torsky explained, diverticulitis is not a chronic illness, but Crohn's disease is. Crohn's is an inflammatory bowel disease that can affect different portions of the gastrointestinal tract in different people. It causes abdominal pain, fatigue, severe diarrhea, weight loss, and malnutrition. Like diverticulitis, it should not and usually cannot be ignored. Caitlin describes her experience with the illness. I was diagnosed with Crohn's at age 18. My father had had it, so it wasn't really a surprise to any of us. Um, At the time, I was reporting pretty much no symptoms because I was constantly having symptoms, so that was just my normal. I thought it was normal to go to the bathroom six times a day. So it sounds like there's some hereditary component, or at least it's suspected. There definitely is. I know at least in my family, my dad has four or five cousins that have it. He's got two uncles that have it. My brother has it. So in our family, it really looks like it's hereditary. When Caitlin learned she had Crohn's, it was the summer before she left for college. I went off to school, and I was okay freshman year. Sophomore year, because I wasn't reporting symptoms, so I wasn't really on medication for it because I was told, well, you seem to be doing fine. You're saying you're fine. We don't treat when you're doing fine. And at the beginning of my sophomore year, I ended up in the ER with a partial bowel obstruction, a severely inflamed colon in terminal ileum, and I was septic too. So I was, I was really, really sick, and I had a giant pelvic abscess that I think – I think the report said it was about six or seven centimeters in diameter. So it was pretty big. And you were away from home. I was seven hours away from home. So you were hospitalized. Yep. And who notified your parents? I did. (laughs) Uh, After they gave me morphine in the ER because I was in a lot of pain, and after the physician came and talked to me and told me what was going on, I called my mother. I was stoned, so I didn't really think much of what I was saying. I didn't know what all of it meant. But my mother, being a nurse, knew what everything meant. She knew that I wasn't getting out of there anytime soon. So she made the seven-hour drive up that night and arrived the next morning. How long were you hospitalized? Total, about 12 days. My time's a little off because I was on heavy medication the whole time, but it was about two days. I was in the first hospital. But They couldn't agree on what to do with me, so I was transferred to a larger hospital. But if I had had surgery, um, I guess really inflamed 
bowel is what they call friable. So if you jog it or pick it up, it runs the risk of just falling apart in your hands. And with how inflamed my intestines and colon were, if I had had surgery, I would have lost almost my entire colon. And I was told if we do surgery right now, you might end up having a bag and you might never get off of it. Doctors told Caitlin she might need a colostomy bag if they operated when her colon was so inflamed. But unlike Matt's experience with a colostomy bag, Caitlin's bag would not be temporary. They told her that if they performed surgery at that point, it could destroy her colon. Doctors ordered more images to decide what to do. I was having CT scans done, and they determined that they could aspirate the largest abscess. I was on heavy antibiotics for the infection, and it it wasn't shrinking between the imaging studies, so they knew they had to do something to get it out of there. And they thought they saw a window through my bowel. Doctors at the first hospital had worried that they might perforate Caitlin's bowel if they attempted the procedure Caitlin was describing. But at the second hospital, they decided they could do it with only minimal risk. They decided, okay, we think we can do this. It seemed to be, at the time, the procedure with the least amount of risk. For me, a 19-year-old who didn't want to lose all of her intestine. And my mother also really pushed for this procedure because, as a nurse, she sees, I mean, she sees patients and she's seen people with colostomy bags and she didn't want that for me. Caitlin was still heavily medicated because she was in so much pain, so her mother was making the medical decisions. And her mom gave doctors permission to drain the abscess. It was done in interventional radiology. You were not given general anesthesia? No, I was not. I was given conscious sedation, which I had only had at one point prior to this for my first colonoscopy, and I actually woke up during my first colonoscopy. I had some indication that conscious sedation doesn't work very well on me, but one instance wasn't enough for me to feel like I could tell them, no, this doesn't work. So I said, okay, I'll try this again. But once again, sedation didn't work for Caitlin. I was in severe pain the entire time. I remember saying something, but then after that, I was incapable of talking. I was in so much pain. The only nurse who was present, she spent the whole time talking to me and encouraging me to get through it rather than actually doing anything to help out during the procedure. So it sounds like she recognized you were in excruciating pain. She did. Did the doctors who were performing the procedure, did they seem to recognize that something was wrong? Um, None of them spoke to me at all, so I don't know. After they drained the abscess, they left in. It was, it was a bellows drain so that they could continue to try to remove pus. And they put me back in the CT scanner to make sure it was placed correctly. And while I was back in the scanner, I passed out from the pain. I was incapable of talking or signaling to anyone or even processing what was happening around me. After the scan, someone took Caitlin out to the hallway and left her there by the nurse's station. She was still in agony. I distinctly remember that another patient was taken to their procedure by me. I can't imagine what it must have been like for them to see me having just come out of a procedure similar to the one they were going to go through. Obviously, at some point, they move you to a room. Yes, they moved me back to my room. But you remain in excruciating pain for quite a long time. Yeah, for, um, it was about 10 hours. I was at a solid 10 out of 10. I was fainting and waking up and fainting and waking up on loop for 10 hours. And no one is treating your extreme pain? Um, They tried. My nurse called my attending. It took him a little while to come see me. And he was about to go off shift. And he basically told her, give her morphine until she's comfortable. I had had morphine directly before going into this procedure. And it hadn't really helped. So at that point, more morphine did nothing for me. 
After 10 hours, Caitlin's pain eased up enough so that she could talk a little and begin to process what was going on around her. Doctors administered Toradol, an anti-inflammatory, and that helped a little. They were most concerned about the infection because I was septic. And people die from sepsis pretty regularly, but of course I was not told that at any point during my stay. I asked Dr. Trotsky why sepsis is so serious. Sepsis is the dysregulated inflammatory response to an infection within your body that can lead to multi-organ dysfunction syndrome or even death. It is very serious. It has, prior to being diagnosed with sepsis, you have SIRS or sustained inflammatory response syndrome, which has to be a certain number of findings, particularly temperature, patient's heart rate, their respiratory rate, um, their white blood cell count. But when you go from SIRS to sepsis, you have a source of infection, uh, whether or not it be from somebody's bloodstream or potentially, in Caitlin's case, of the abscess um, or even a lung infection. Um, but there's a, a source associated with sepsis. But it is very serious. Nobody in the hospital talked to Caitlin about her 10 hours of excruciating pain. And because no one acknowledged her extreme condition or acknowledged they could have handled it better, Caitlin thought that what happened was normal. I, I thought it was completely normal because no one sat me down and said, look, this wasn't normal. We should have handled this better. You shouldn't have had to go through this. That conversation never took place, so I just assumed this is what happens all the time. This is just part of being a patient, and I am a patient now, so I should expect this to happen again at some point in time. But Caitlin also eventually recognized that the nurses were not happy with the way her care had been handled. Nurses, not physicians, were the ones who knew the details of her case. It was, Caitlin said, almost like the doctors were there only to fill out official paperwork. After she was released, she was okay for about a year. And by okay, she said, she meant she was numb, in a state of shock regarding the entire episode. It, it took about a year for things to really kind of fall apart, where I, I just started dreading going to my appointments. I hated taking my medications. Whenever I would walk into any kind of medical facility, I would just shut down. I would go on autopilot. I would refuse to engage emotionally with anything or anyone. I didn't trust any of my doctors. I double-checked everything they said. And I, I continued to rely heavily on my mother to make a lot of decisions because I, I just didn't trust myself at that point. Because I, ha I had been the one to sign the consent form for that procedure. So I didn't think I, could, I was capable of making good decisions about my own health. I'm a med student now. With the knowledge I have now, I can look back and see that medically, that was the correct choice. But I couldn't fathom like surgery or having a colostomy bag having been worse than what actually happened. So you're even thinking that you should have foregone all that and simply had your colon removed and lived with a colostomy bag rather than gone through that horrific 12 days that you went through. Yeah, because at, at that point I had had, I had had three surgeries at that point. I was pretty comfortable with the idea of surgeries. So that seemed, it seemed like the better option for a little while. You know, I know from talking to you about this experience in the past that this, this was so profound to you and so debilitating to you and so crushing that it completely changed your relationship with the healthcare system. Because I, I assumed this was normal and that I shouldn't expect more from the healthcare system, 
You blamed yourself, essentially. Oh, yeah. Because everyone was acting like nothing was wrong, and I knew there was a problem. I ended up with post-traumatic stress disorder from this experience, so I, I knew there was a problem. I assumed that I was the problem and that there must be something wrong with me, and that was why this had happened. How should doctors have handled it? Oh, they should have talked to me and my mom and to each other because it, it really felt like there was no communication between the doctors. It felt like they weren't talking to me and explaining to me what was happening, or even asking me to share how I was feeling. I mean, I didn't even get a prognosis for sepsis. I didn't know what sepsis was. No one told me sepsis was deadly. And there was also Caitlin's biggest complaint. Doctors and nurses ignored her persistent, excruciating pain. Being left like that for that long basically told me that my pain didn't matter and that I really shouldn't expect anyone to do anything about it. At that point, you were the pain. You were living in a bu bubble of pain. The medical system not acknowledging your pain, they were dismissing that you even matter. I mean, that must have, that must have been partly the reaction that you were feeling. Oh, yeah. At, at that point, every single iota of my brain power went into trying to stay conscious. I could not talk to people. I couldn't listen to people. I was just trying to stay conscious, and I couldn't even do that. I was fainting on loop for hours and hours. Crohn's is a chronic illness. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously have to see gastrointestinal specialists. Yes. Your current GI specialist knows this story. An abbreviated version, yes. In telling your current doctor this story, did you make it really clear that you need clear communication? Has, has this changed the way that you relate to doctors and the way you essentially, as a patient, kind of train them? Yeah, I'm, I am far more willing to drop doctors now than I ever was. I, I have seen a couple of doctors who I feel dismissed the concerns I came in with or wanted to focus on something that I felt didn't matter. So, And they didn't seem willing to compromise in any way, so I just never went back. And actually, the GI doctor I was seeing prior to this happening, I stopped seeing him a year later because he wanted to do more testing. And, and at that point, I decided I cannot tolerate this right now. But he wouldn't back down. So I said, all right, I'll go somewhere else. He wanted me to do another colonoscopy. I think it was, it wasn't even a year after this had happened. And, and I just said, nope, <laughs> I'm not doing this again so soon. So are you feeling like now your current doctor has a handle on, on the illness, that you have, feel like you have a partnership, that you're able to work on what your needs are together? Yeah, I was happy with him from the start. Um, he's always been a very good communicator. Dr. Torsky talked about the difficulty of treating Crohn's. Unlike diverticulitis, Crohn's requires lifelong treatment. The medications that we start to treat your Crohn's is lifelong. Crohn's disease, it can affect in both young and old. And when it happens and occurs in our young, so less than 30, like Caitlin, it can be more aggressive. And all Crohn's wants to do, and what it did to Caitlin's body and what it wants to do to anywhere from 20 to 30% of the patient population that suffer from Crohn's is develop what is known as strictures and fistulas. And stricturing is, the basic way to think about it, is narrowing of your intestinal tract, as well as fistulas is creating new tracts. So anywhere from bowel to bowel, bowel to bladder, bowel to vagina, bowel to your anus, bowel to skin, and can, it can ooze and leak. I asked Caitlin how her experience has shaped her vision of the type of physician she eventually wants to be. Well, I've seen a lot of the kind of physician I don't want to be. 
frankly. That's, it's, that's an easier thing to identify. For me, I think just being honest is the biggest thing. And when something, when something is wrong, don't pretend like nothing is wrong. I think people wanted it to be okay, so they pretended it was okay. Caitlin described what she now believes doctors did wrong. The first thing was I signed a consent form, really drugged up. I had just been given morphine, and I was half asleep when I signed that consent form. So you did not have the capacity to give consent? No. And my mother was available, so having her sign it should not have been an issue. Up until about one or two years ago, she still went to all my appointments with me. And up until that point that I signed the consent form, every time someone would come in and ask me a question, I'd look at her because I wanted to know what she wanted me to do and what she wanted me to say. That should have been something that doctors and nurses observed too. That If you were looking at your mother for what the proper response was, they could have at that point intervened and said, clearly you're not feeling well. Do you want your mother to be making medical decisions for you? But in the meantime, they were getting all their cues from someone who was very drugged. Yep. And in and in uh, a lot of pain. Yep. And very, very sick. Do you feel like your consent was informed? Not really. Mostly when we talked about risks, it was the risks of a surgery that I wasn't going to have. No one told me, you might be in severe pain even if we don't perforate your bowel, which is what had happened. I just, I just felt like my doctors were not talking to each other at all. I mean, a lot of times things just don't go in the chart. So the people who come on staff next just don't know what happened because it never got written down. I requested my medical records from my hospitalization. Nowhere does it say that I was in severe pain. To me, that was the most important part of my hospitalization. And it it just didn't happen, apparently. It doesn't exist in my records. Have you talked to your GI specialist about how to avoid that ever happening again? Not explicitly. I figured out a lot of it on my own. After my hospitalization, about a month afterwards, I had part of my bowel removed that was just very scarred over. And afterwards, I didn't really have any symptoms of Crohn's disease. And it was my first time ever not having any symptoms of Crohn's disease. So I got to figure out, oh, this is what normal people poop like. And what I was doing before was not normal at all. So after not having symptoms, I got better about reporting my symptoms when I did have them. That's so interesting because that probably is a problem with chronic illness is that you, you know, it becomes the new normal. Yep. And so it's very difficult to report accurately to doctors because that's what you live with all the time. Worst of all for Caitlin's ongoing treatment, she began to feel that she was unworthy of health care because she'd been so sick and her illness continued to be so costly. I was extremely aware of how much that it cost my family, my insurance company, and I just, I didn't feel like it was worth it a lot of the time. I I ended up feeling like my life was worth less than that of a healthy person's life. What advice would you give to patients who face similar situations, both with doctors ignoring you when you're in severe discomfort and um, with, ha- with having to cope with an illness that you probably will have to cope with lifelong? You have a right to pain relief. If you are in pain, that's not something they could ignore. And I would also think that it's important for everyone to learn that 
they have a right to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times you really have to. And it's probably a good lesson, too, that when as sick as you were, and since you were on drugs that didn't exactly make you coherent, it's also really important to have an advocate with you when you're in the hospital. Oh, yeah. Often you can be neglected unless there is someone there making demands for you. And Caitlin had one more crucial piece of advice for patients. Doctors work for you. You don't work for the doctor. If your doctor is not listening to you and you've done what you can to try to make them listen, go somewhere else. Don't, don't let that doctor make you feel like you're stupid or unworthy or incompetent or anything like that. While Matt's illness, diverticulitis, might never reoccur, we learn from him that you have to pay attention to pain and discomfort. Caitlin's illness, Crohn's disease, is chronic. And as we learn from Caitlin, chronic illness requires a lifelong, successful patient-doctor partnership. And whether the GI disease is chronic or acute, GI disease can be especially difficult to treat. Dr. Torsky agrees. As young women, young men, no one wants to... Older men, older women, they don't want to talk about diarrhea. They don't want to talk about loose stools or having accidents or having blood. I approach every patient with the same intent of trying to, one, improve their overall health, both physically as well as mentally, because I think at the end of the day, and we need to do a better job of it um, as physicians and healthcare providers, in particular, especially with our patients who suffer from inflammatory bowel disease, that a lot of studies show that we do not do a good enough job of addressing depression and anxiety that is associated with it. All I can do with my patients, when you come into my office and I've never met you and you suffer from ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, they're very long visits, 30, 40 minutes. I let you come in and tell me whatever is troubling you and why you're there to meet me in the first place. One of my big goals is just trying to increase their education for the disease itself so that they are hopefully more empowered and uh, understanding of what's going on so it's not just dictating their life. They are in the, in the driver's seat of how to approach it. I just try to create a, a good relationship from the, from the get-go. And sometimes it is hard, especially when a patient has had a horrific experience and traumatic events that have set them down this cycle of, to the point where they feel unworthy of going to see anybody. They've had a lot of bad information. Sometimes it's much harder to peel that back than it is to a newly diagnosed patient. And it's just about being able to provide them as much information as possible and trying to get patients to see that, yes, everything we do is risk-benefit, but the benefits outweigh the risks, and we're just trying to get you healthier. We can all learn from Matt's and Caitlin's experiences. We need to pay attention to the messages our bodies send. We should complain to doctors and nurses when we're not being listened to. And doctors can learn how to be better doctors by listening closely to patients' stories. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the host of Lifespan. Thank you for listening to this episode on serious gastrointestinal illness. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. Olivia Stefanoff is our audio editor. Adam and I are Lifespan's executive producers. Join us next month when three mothers talk about their children's births by cesarean surgery. Mm-hmm.